our uh, text this morning, I want to give us a really quick recap of where we've been in this series and uh, what happened in the 23 verses uh, before this text. So we won't have to read the, the whole chapter today. Um, but what's in your bulletin is where we're going to be focusing in. So if you've been with us here uh, the last few weeks, we are in a series in the book of Daniel. And our, our goal in this series is we're considering together how the book of Daniel, which is about um, a person of God who's found his way into the most powerful court uh, of the day in the most wealthy city of the day, how, how this book might teach us now what it looks like to follow Jesus in the city, in particular in the city of Madison. And what um, I want us to see today in Daniel 4 is what humility in the city looks like. That's what our passage is about today. So let me, let me set the stage for us as we read this passage. If you were here with us last week, we saw in Daniel 3 that King Nebuchadnezzar had made a golden image to be worshipped that was meant to display the glory of his kingdom. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to the image, the king throws them in a fiery furnace. But they are not burned. They're saved by God, who we find is much more powerful than this king. And the passage ends with King Nebuchadnezzar actually blessing this God for what he showed him. And so the first three verses of chapter 4 actually begin with Nebuchadnezzar praising the works of God, praising his everlasting kingdom, directly off the back of what had just happened. But starting in verse 4 of this chapter, chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that confuses him. He sees a great tree that has grown so big and so tall and so powerful that it had reached the heavens so that it was visible to the whole earth. And this tree was beautiful and bountiful and was essential to the whole ecosystem of birds and beasts. But his dream, in his dream, he sees what he calls a watcher or a holy one coming down from heaven who chops down the tree. And everything that was once under its shade that it had touched departs from it. And the tree is left as a stump that we are told is bound in iron and bronze. And Nebuchadnezzar, even after praising God in the first few verses of this chapter, and seeing, if you were with us uh, the other week in Daniel 2, that this person, Daniel, who's a person of Yahweh, uh, was the only one who had been able to interpret his, his other dream. Even though Nebuchadnezzar knew all these things, the first thing he does is not call Daniel. He calls the magicians and the satraps and the governors instead to interpret it. But just like before, they're not able to. So then, at that moment, he turns to Daniel in verse 19, who tells him that Nebuchadnezzar is actually the strong and mighty tree, and that God was giving him a warning that God would make him a stump unless he repented and changed his way. So this is where we pick up in verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar has just seen this tree. He's just called Daniel. And uh, would you stand with me and we'll read the word together. This is from Daniel 4, 24 through 37. Daniel is speaking, and he says this. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave, uh, to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities 
by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And, re and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you guys see, let's pray before we dive in. Jesus, uh, we are thankful uh, for this word. We're thankful that you have given it to us because you love us, uh, that you have given it to us because you desire to know us and you desire us to know you. We pray as we enter this text that you would speak, that these uh, words would not fall on deaf ears and your spirit would be at work on our hearts. All things in your name. Amen. So as we see in this passage at the pinnacle of Nebuchadnezzar's self-proclaimed glory, he looks out at the balcony of his palace and says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's a pretty bold statement, right? See, as we see in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar's pride has made a mess of his relationship with God, and it actually leads to his humiliation. But Nebuchadnezzar, if we were to take a step back at a moment, he has arrived in a sense. We know him in the world. Right? He was the ruler of the most powerful kingdom. He had brought wealth and beauty to his nation. He was envied by other nations. If there was like a top 100 kings of the day list, he would be number one. And in the eyes of the world, he had accomplished everything he could have dreamed of and more. And in that sense, he had a really large resume to boast about. If we look at the text today, we this morning, I don't know, you, you might have this, but most of us probably don't have aspirations to be great kings or queens. Uh, if you do, talk to me after. I'd love to learn how that started. Um, or we might not have anything near the kind of power that King Nebuchadnezzar had at his disposal. But we also can find ourselves on similar balconies, looking out over our own Babylons, and similarly tempted to boast of our own majesty. See, what this passage speaks about is the problem of pride, a problem that I am prone toward, 
and all of us in this room are prone toward. We struggle with pride, and this is true of us this morning, whether we uh, are Christians or we're here exploring the faith. Um, And what I hope that we can find this morning is that God has for us a surer and better promise for us in his kingdom and through his accomplishments than any kingdom we strive to create for ourselves. That's what it wants to see in this passage. See, there are all these kingdoms that we look at to be satisfied by. And to quote Jim Carrey, they don't work. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that then they could see it's not the answer. These kingdoms often don't satisfy us. And let me just pause and say very briefly, uh, when we talk about the subject of pride, it's easy to be get confused because we use that word in our culture in a lot of different ways. The Bible is not against self-confidence. It's not against receiving joy in our work. It's not against feeling good about our efforts. But a better way to consider whether we are struggling with pride in a given area of our lives is considering these two questions that I would encourage us to engage our hearts with as we dive into the passage. Do we view our accomplishments as a gift or our accomplishments as something that we are entitled to and therefore our struggles always as a slight? When life gives you lemons, is it the world's fault? And when life gives you lemonade, is it because of your hard work? See, pride says, I did that. And when things go well, pride says, I am owed that. And when things don't go well, pride says, I am not owed that. Second question, what in our lives is enough for us? See, pride is tricky because it's not often not as easily noticed as something like stealing or lying. It's born in our hearts. That's why Tim Keller in the reflection quote you saw today says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's silent, the deadly. It often operates from a feeling or a sense of lack. And I think we can be tempted to move around the world according to what we are lacking that we feel like we are owed. One preacher put it this way. He says, pride comes from a hole in our heart. And so what is enough for us? Are there promises that we find ourselves making to fill this hole? Are we like Michael Jordan, who after an interview, after many accolades, was asked the question, Michael, you've done so many things. What's enough for you? And his answer was just a little bit more. Is that how we operate in the world? And what God is doing in this passage for Nebuchadnezzar is in love laying bare the hole in his heart by shifting his vantage point from the balcony to heaven so that he might find peace in God's kingdom and wholeheartedness as God's creature who he loves. See, this is God's invitation for us this morning in this passage. First, he wants to lay bare our hearts and our own struggle with pride. And then he wants us to see what pride is doing to us. And finally, he wants us to see how the gospel is better than and even incompatible with our pride. That's what I want us to see this morning. So what's the problem in this passage, right? The problem is that Nebuchadnezzar is full of pride. In many ways, he's playing God. And this is hinted at in Daniel's interpretation of the vision. It's meant to help him know this vision, that as we see in verse 25, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he wills. In other words, uh, Neb, if I can call him that, Neb thinks that he is owed his success by his efforts and his status, rather than as a gift from God. And this is, uh, his struggle with pride is most clear in his statement in verse 30, which I've read a couple times now, right? He says that I have built it, that it is by my mighty power, and that it is for the glory of my majesty, right? These are these, these fighting words that he says there, right? 
And this problem of pride that we see in this passage is actually more complicated than we might just look at first appearance. Uh, I want to point to two reasons why this is the case. First, it's more complicated, or you could even say deeper, this problem of pride. Because Nebuchadnezzar was given a warning. Did you see this in this passage? He was given a warning. He had a chance to repent, and he didn't. In verse 27, Daniel says very clearly to Nebuchadnezzar, Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off from your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And and I just want to note really quickly as we look at that statement, like Nebuchadnezzar didn't get to where he was innocently. Uh, See, often the way that pride works is that it convinces us that what we want and what we are doing is for a purpose that is higher than anything else. And when we do that, we can often, even subtly, be tempted to use people to get what we believe will satisfy the whole in our hearts. See, here Nebuchadnezzar had built his kingdom on the backs of the oppressed because he was convinced that the glory of his kingdom and his mighty majesty was, uh, was worth the sacrifice, right? And so here God sends Daniel to give the king a warning that his pride would ultimately lead to his humiliation. But if he repented and showed mercy to the oppressed, God might relent. And this is the pattern of God in Scripture. Judgment is never the end of the story. We see this, for instance, in the book of Jonah, which the people who are reading this would be well acquainted with, that God sent Jonah to Nineveh to give them a warning. And when they heeded it, judgment didn't happen, right? They're given a warning. But we see in verse 29 that 12 months later, that's an important word, 12 months later. Have you seen movies where something's just happened and it says 12 months later and then all these characters are doing the right thing? Well, this is the opposite. 12 months later after this incident, Nebuchadnezzar is still living life the way he did it before. He had not heeded the warning. And so it's worth asking the question, why? Why did he not heed the warning? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think that Nebuchadnezzar truly believed that he could not fall. He truly believed that he could not fall. He truly believed that he was the master of his destiny, and that no one could take from him what was his majesty. See, one of my favorite definitions of pride, if you've heard it before, is cosmic plagiarism. Cosmic plagiarism. See, pride tells us that our accomplishments, our money, our possessions, our relationships, that they only belong to us and they are ours. We've earned them and they are ours. And therefore, along stronger seasons of our life, when we're feeling strong, what we convince ourselves is that what we are owed cannot ever be taken. But the Bible tells us a different story, that what we have is a gift received from God, that even our talents were ultimately given by our creator, and that his will is at work in everything that we do. That's why verse 25 says that he gives it to whom he wills. And therefore, pride is cosmic plagiarism because it claims that what we have is ours rather than something given from God. This is why C.S. Lewis says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You cannot know your creator. Nebuchadnezzar could not see in his pride that the creator of the universe was in charge, and this ultimately led him to not heeding the warning. Right? That's one way in which it cuts deeper. Secondly, it cuts deeper because God's punishment revealed what pride was doing to Nebuchadnezzar. Let me talk to you what I mean there. The humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar we see in this text, where it talks about him becoming a beast, it was not purposeless. 
God's punishment was meant to teach a cosmic lesson about cosmic plagiarism. See, God is not rash or cruel in the scriptures. He doesn't uh, just do this for any reason, right? Uh, one of my uh, professors in seminary would tell this story about parenting where he tried the best that he could as an imperfect parent uh, when he disciplined his kids to not just send them to their room, but to give them some sort of thing to help them learn about what they've done. So a story he, he used for that is one of his kids uh, wasn't taking good care of her backpack. She was throwing it around the house, breaking lamps, all sorts of crazy stuff. And so uh, rather than just doing that, what he did was for one week, uh, she had to carry a grocery bag with her books in it to just teach the lesson of what the importance of the backpack and the need to take care of it, right? And in the scriptures, in a much more serious way, God wants to teach Nebuchadnezzar something about his cosmic plagiarism. So here's the cosmic lesson that God teaches the king. He's teaching him that his pride is always dehumanizing himself. He's saying that you think that you are more than a man, so I want to make you less than a man so that you realize what a man is. See, uh, finiteness and creatureliness is not a curse in the Bible. Uh, God is lovingly helping Nebuchadnezzar realize that he needs to stop playing God, that he's actually damaging his humanity and the humanity of others in the process. One commentator puts it this way. He says, it is a tragic and pathetic scene. Superman has become subman. The one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly, bestial. See, pride has made Nebuchadnezzar and can also make us subhuman in certain ways. Let me talk to you about what I mean with that. One way we see that is if we are filled with pride, we have no ability to empathize with other people. We just can't. As long as we believe that we are above others, we cannot be with others. And we will be tempted to see others' circumstances as that which they are owed rather than to hear them as fellow creatures. See, Nebuchadnezzar could not empathize with the poor because he saw them as a pawn in his plan for glory. Another way that pride does this is uh, pride is not capable of joy. We were created to experience joy with God, but pride is not capable of joy. And I'm not talking here about temporary happiness. There's all sorts of things that pride can create in us to get us temporary happiness. But sustaining joy, even in seasons of adversity. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. There's always a new man to have something more with. It's that phrase earlier of Michael Jordan. Pride tells us just a little bit more. We are never satisfied, and therefore pride is not capable of joy. One other way is that those with pride, most importantly, can never get the gospel. Those of us who are filled with pride can't get the gospel. Because if we are filled with pride, we cannot admit our sense of need. See, recognizing need is the essential first step to receiving grace. And that's what we see in this passage. So Nebuchadnezzar's pride has made a mess of his relationship with God, and it was more complicated than we might think because he was given a warning about his pride that he did not heed, and God's punishment had taught him a cosmic lesson about what pride was doing to him. But there's this sudden shift in the passage. Did you see it? In verse 34, we see that judgment is not the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar's reason is restored to him. And then he even praises God in verse 37 for what happened. 
that's pretty weird. Like, I don't know about you, but if I'm, like, eating grass and lost my reason, I'm probably not going to praise God at the end of that, right? What's going on there? What's going on? So how is it that Nebuchadnezzar is able to praise God after everything that had happened? Well, what we see is that God revealing Nebuchadnezzar's pride also reveals the gospel to him. See, God revealing Nebuchadnezzar's pride also makes it possible for the gospel to be revealed to him. Let me tell you what I mean. See, Nebuchadnezzar praises God in verse 34, and then again in verse 37, because after God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, he was able to see God for who he is, as this better king. In verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar praises God that God can humble the proud. And he does this because those who walk in pride as he did can never understand the gospel and therefore cannot receive the good news of God. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel, probably familiar with it if you've been to this church a while, is um, uh, it goes like this. It says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. These two parts of the same coin, right? The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And what pride does is it prevents us from seeing our need, and therefore it prevents us from seeing God's provision. It prevents us from seeing our need, and therefore it presents us, prevents us from seeing God's provision. But humility, on the other hand, it always holds two things together. That we don't deserve anything, and that we are still the object of God's love. That we don't deserve anything, and that we are still the object of God's love. See, real humility receives life as a gift. The humble do not despise themselves. That's not what's going on here. But we understand God's love because we get grace. See, humility allows us to see the depth of God's love. That he accepts us and loves us, not because of anything that we bring, but only because of his grace. And therefore, there's nothing that we can do to merit God's love, and our failures are not a way to lose God's love. Right? One commentator puts it this way, uh, applying it to the people of Israel. I think it's helpful. He says, This was an important message for Israel to hear. For the imagery of the once proud tree that had been reduced to a mere stump spoke to their situation just as much as it did Nebuchadnezzar's. When the prophet Isaiah asked the Lord how long he would labor with so little response, the Lord's reply was this in Isaiah 6.13. The holy seed, which means the people of Israel, will be the stump in the land. This judgment was exactly what had come upon the people of Israel in Daniel's day. Israel was itself like a tree that had been cut down and destroyed until only the stump remained. And that also meant that Nebuchadnezzar's experience could be a source of hope for them. If Nebuchadnezzar could be forgiven and restored when he humbled himself and looked to the Lord, then Israel too could be forgiven and restored. See, the people would be looking back to the time of Solomon in 2 Chronicles, where it says this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. And because this is the connection, the same reality is also true for us. That the gospel, the grace of God, is an intrinsically humbling message. And the only way for us to enter into God's kingdom is with empty hands, right? Uh, there's a popular story. I'm sure my students have heard me give this illustration a number of times. Sorry about it. Um, in RUF, um, 
about, not the area of here, but across the country, um, of a student, um, which is a really beautiful testimony, so I'll share it with you this morning. There's a student about 10 to 12 years ago from another campus um, who uh, had a beautiful testimony. The student um, was a Bible study leader for years. He was a great student leader. He was athletic. He was popular, all these things. Uh, but one of the hard things is his sophomore year in college, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And one of the stories that he tells in looking back on that time is that he had begun to get really, really sick, so much so that he had to be hospitalized for an extended period of time. And there's one night that he remembers very distinctly. He had to go to the bathroom and he got out of bed and he fell and he was so weak that he had to spend the night on the floor, just waiting for a nurse to come. And stuck on that floor between the bed and the bathroom, unable to do anything, this is what he says. He says, now on the other side, I thank God in a weird way that I got cancer because that was the moment that I got the gospel. Stuck on the floor, weaker than I've ever been, I was able to get it. That God loved me just as much on that floor as he did when I was able to boast of my many accomplishments. See, humility is good news. It's good news for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's good news for us, because we need it to get the gospel. We need it to know that we are the extreme objects of God's love. No one exemplified a life of humility better than Jesus. See, what we see in the Bible, one summary of it, is that we won't give up our glories, so Jesus gives up his glories. That's what we see in the Bible. In Philippians 2, Paul recounts this about Jesus as he speaks to the church in Philippi. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, what we see is that Jesus did not satisfy the hole in our hearts through the gospel by exalting himself, but by coming down from heaven, by becoming man, by becoming a humble servant, and dying on the cross for us. And let me be clear, no one in this room is Jesus. I am not Jesus. But in Jesus, we see that true exaltation comes from God through humility, not from building our own kingdoms. God desires each of us in this room to know that you are the object of his love. And so the question is, will we humble ourselves so that our eyes might be open to the gospel? so that we might see what pride does to ourselves and we might see what grace does for us. And so what does this mean for us as we wrap up? Well, I just wanna ask a number of questions and encourage us throughout the week to diagnose with ourselves, our families, our community groups, these questions. I imagine many of them were doing very well, but it's helpful to get our brains percolating and pray about them. Well, first, what does it mean for our relationship with God? Do we find ourselves on our own balconies looking down and unable to see what our Creator is doing? How does that cause us to treat other people? Are there areas of our lives that we are clinging to in order to satisfy the holes in our hearts? How do other people describe working with us or being in relationship with us, especially when there is disagreement? 
God is inviting us this morning to lay bare our hearts so that we might be moved from pride to humility. We need Jesus, each of us, myself included, more than we realize. And you are the objects of God's love. So let's be honest with him about ourselves so that he might be honest with us about his grace. What does this mean for us as a church and as the people of God? Well, we see in the Bible that God desires his church to display this gospel humility with one another and in our city. One of the things that uh, we observed is that pride cannot empathize with others. And so how might we this week, as a people centered on the humble servant Jesus, better empathize with one another and our neighbors? Do we make space in our week and our days to hear what is going on in each other's lives? Do we do this in our community groups or in our Bible studies? Are these places places of empathy? Do we see service as a burden or as a gift? What does gospel humility look like in our careers? It's a lovely thing that Madison is a city that is full of driven and talented people. It's also a lovely thing that it is the center of academics and research and full of bright and ambitious people. These are all good things. As we take root of what we're looking at in this passage, how might God in these spaces be asking us to engage in these environments with humility? What would that look like? How might that be different? See, Christians have a unique opportunity in this world not to create kingdoms or powerful hubs for themselves or to create powerful churches, but rather to live our lives in praise of the humble servant and in gratitude of God's love. And this is actually true freedom. And it's free and on offer for all of us in this room. So what would it look like to look to Jesus this week, the one who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, because you are the object of his love, not because we bring anything to him, but because he came down from heaven and died for us. Let's pray that God would help us. Jesus, thank you uh, for this word. Um, thank you that you love us. We pray that as we depart from this, taste, this place, as we move towards the table, uh, that you in this meal uh, would remind us um, of who you are, of what you've done, and that as we walk forward with empty hands, that you would restore us, that you would fill us, that you would equip us, to see that everything that we have is given by grace. And that's a good thing. Follow us in your name. Amen.